Welcome to the Inspiration Accelerator, hosted by Michael Sonberg, founder and CEO of Rebel Culture and Skyrocket Education. Each week, we'll talk to a different, inspiring person in the world of leadership, personal development, career, family, fitness, and beyond. Buckle up for the Inspiration Accelerator. Welcome, everybody, to a brand new episode of the Inspiration Accelerator. I am so excited to bring out my guest shortly. Her name is Jen Whitmer, and she is, um, I thought I had a lot of energy. Jen Whitmer makes me look like I'm on Valium and uh, sleeping on the carpet, and uh, she's just bringing the pressure, and she's going to bring the energy when she uh, when she comes out here. Before we get to Jen, I want to just share a story. I was on a call the other day and somebody, I was talking about my son and uh, one of my sons and for new listeners to the show, um, one of my sons has uh, very severe autism. Um, he's seven and a half, uh, still in a diaper, um, mostly nonverbal, you know, bites, scratches, pulls hair, um, you know, uh, injures himself and, and, and sometimes others. Uh, and my favorite person in the whole world, but uh, it's certainly been something that that's been a challenge. And so I was on the phone with somebody, I was on a call with somebody, and they said, "Well, what's the biggest learning that having a, a child with such special special needs? Um, what's the biggest learning he's given you?" And I shared a story that I want to share with you all now because I think it's really relevant and. It goes like this, um, and this is, this, is, this is a real story. I'm not making this up. My, my friends and I do a, um, we hike a trail on the North Shore of Long Island a couple times a year. It's a 10-mile hike. It's five miles out and then five miles back. And for the first mile to mile and a half, it's completely flat. Uh, and we get there early enough that we see the sun coming up, and it's this gorgeous view as we're walking through a, a field on a, on a mostly dirt path. And we're we're talking some of these guys I've known for for over thirty years, and we're we're talking and we're laughing and we're joking, uh, and the time kind of flies by. But as we start to get further into the hike, uh, it starts to become rockier, and the incline increases, and it gets very slippery because it's it's wooded, so it's it's very often um, super wet, and um, the conversations stop, and the most of the focus is on like the path right ahead of us. And there's lots of like the guy up front calls back like big hole, watch out, right? And we all watch out for it. And somebody else says slippery, slippery, right? And so that's letting the the other people know that um, they need to really look out at that point. Uh, and what you're focused on, or at least what we're focused on when we hike this trail during those parts is just the steps right in front of us, just the ground beneath our feet. And I told the person on the call, and I'll, I'll tell you all the same thing, that I almost equate being an autism dad, at least to this young man, um, as something very similar. I don't get out of the present moment that often because parenting him is like being on the incline and that height where uh, we have to watch what we're doing so incredibly closely and carefully 
because uh, we could slip at any moment. Um, and, uh, you know, example, the other night, Saturday night, we woke up at 2 a.m. Uh, and he was happy, which is great. We're very happy when he's happy versus when he's not happy, uh, because that could sometimes be, be uh, you know, scary for him, but um, would not go back to sleep, banging on the walls. Potentially, I'm concerned he's going to wake up the whole house. And so I'm with him, you know, in his room and then trying to get him to calm down in his bed for, for four hours. He finally fell back to sleep at, at 6 a.m. Uh, and that stuff like that happens all the time. And uh, what it's taught me is just to be so incredibly present. Um, there's the old expression that if you have kids, but even if you don't, this should resonate. Like the, the days are long, but the years are short. And that's not our experience. Like the years don't feel short. We soak up every second of them because parenting him has forced me to be so present to everything I'm doing every step of the way. The time doesn't fly by. Nothing is taken for granted. And whether you, whether you have kids or not, or, or um, you know, or it's just about your, your, your work or your relationships, like if you could channel some of that, some of that, like, I am so focused on the right now and not focused on the five years from now, the 10 years from now. Sure, you want to set goals and you want to achieve stuff down the road. That's great. But Man, it is it has changed my perspective on life, and I am exponentially more present as a result. Uh, and there's a blessing in that, right? There's a there's a gift in that. The universe said uh, to me, "Hey, man, you're the most impersonal, uh, impatient person on earth. Uh, I got something for you. Uh, a guy who's gonna force you to be unbelievably patient and present." All right, friends, I am gonna bring out our guest. Jen Whitmer. She is a speaker. She is a consultant. She is a joy bringer. She's also married to her high school sweetheart for 25 years. And as she says it, as she tells it, they managed to keep four children alive. Uh, we are so excited to have Jen on the show. Jen, welcome to the Inspiration Accelerator. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for being here, Michael. I always love listening to you and your wisdom. So it's just, it's a privilege to be here and be a part. Oh man, thanks so much. I'm super humbled. And I got to just tell folks, uh, Jen and I are in a coaching group together. And the very first time we met was at an event in Nashville, Tennessee. And Jen, I've never even told you this, but you started Ooh. speaking at one point and I said, who is this person? Who is this like <laughs> dynamic, uh, like just world changing, like uh, just incredibly passionate human beings? So just from the very first time we met, I was like, I, I need to learn more about this person. So I'm so glad you're on the Aww. show. So uh, so I get to do that. That's so kind of you to say. And uh, you said some very kind, encouraging things to me that day. So I have vivid memories of that Saturday as well. <laughs> oh, man, that was an incredible, incredible day. Uh, Jen, tell folks what you actually do. Speaker, consultant, joy bringer. We're going to talk about this thing called Enneagrams shortly, which is something that is pretty new to me. But just to give folks overall, like, what do you do? And, and what's the what's the difference you're looking to make for people in the world? Yeah. Um, well, so what I like to describe as what I do is that um, inspiring and equipping leaders in, in their workplaces and with their teams so they can solve conflict, cultivate great communication, mm. create empowered teams. So the culture of where they work 
allows them to live an integrated life and where people are whole work is a joy and the organization flourishes. And um, so I do that work through, as you said, keynote speaking and workshops and training um, and coaching. So we can get to that place where work is a joy and we work well together in where it's peaceful and joyful. And that makes everything run smoothly, which is what we all really want in so many ways. Jen, what do you say to the person listening to this who thinks that you're crazy and I'm crazy because work sucks and it can never be a joy? What What are those people missing out on? What are they? What's your message for them? Ooh, well, so many things, and I think some of that, if they were standing or sitting in front of me saying that, I would probably push them a little bit and say, "What are you afraid of? If you dream that it could be different." Mm. Because I think a lot of times that response comes from a couple of places. One is lack of experience that work can be a joy, like lack of experience in a, in any situation where work is where it's like, oh, that was we did this and it was fun and enjoyable. Um, and I also think there is this fear within all of us as humans that if I get my hopes up and you mm. tell me that I can live a life where things are peaceful, I feel whole work is fun and fulfilling and it doesn't happen, then I'm devastated before I was, before I was before, you know? And so I think there is an element of fear in that getting our expectations up. So I think when we feel that, like, it's just, this is the way it's always going to be. This is the way the world works. And I usually come at that with those questions, but also, but it, it doesn't have to be that way. We've changed the world lots of times. So let's do it one little person at a time, one team at a time, one organization, and we can make a difference for where you are. And um, so that's kind of where I come at at that because I understand that fear. Of if I get my expectations up, then it's going to hurt more. And that's really human. Mm. <laughs> and Jen, do you think there's a part of it? I I, uh, I don't want to put my thumb on the scale here, but do you think there's a part of just our culture itself. I don't mean like workplace culture. I mean, just like our culture in general, where people are led to believe that work needs to be hard and needs to be a a, a slog. Mm -hmm. We, you know, we're not that far removed from generations who, uh, you know, what they say, the most unhappy generation was the post world war generation where all these people came back from you know yeah. fighting the most important battle in the history of our world and then were like forced to put on suits and ties and go to jobs they hated and the, right. you know alcoholism levels were sky high and domestic abuse was sky high and folks were just really unhappy and like like we're not that far removed from people who and I'm generalizing here but people who hated work yeah. And thought that like this is terrible. So does it feel like it's embedded in our culture that like like work can't be fun and it it can't be enjoyable? I think I think you're exactly right, actually. And and in my you know somewhat generational studies that I've done, that's a, what you just stated is a real thing because there is this idea of especially people who lived through the depression, which is, Mm. you know, a lot of the people who have currently shaped our culture. And yes, the people who came back from the war, it's just like, be grateful, be grateful. Mm. You've got a job. Um, and that Mm. gratitude is right. I am so grateful that I get to do this work and we should be grateful that we have work, 
But I don't think that that negates the idea or or leads us to the idea that then it has to be terrible. Like, just be grateful because it's always terrible. I don't think those two things have to go together. And I um, I happen to, in my work, have worked with a lot of farmers and a lot of people in the agriculture industry. And their work is hard. It is a lot of physical labor. It is incredibly expensive when you're when your most used tool is a couple million dollars and you're not sure if your crops are going to sell, it's high stress. (laughs) And so Mm. they they live in this place, except many of the farmers that I know, they're like, I want this work. I love Mm. this work. And so I think that is possible for us when we find a few things. One is we find places that align with our values and those, and we create organizations that are values aligned and values driven. And then two, when we get to work in a place where people are honored as people and And that works out like every day in when you're listened to in a meeting or when you are, there's a conflict that happens and it's solved in a way where everybody is heard, the problem is resolved and it doesn't resort to gaslighting and gossip. Like Mm. that's how that works out. Because if you go to work and you enjoy the people that you work with and you see the connection to what you do as tied to something larger than just you know, I'm creating a marketing proposal for something, or I'm I'm just doing payroll. If you start to connect that to the larger purpose, research shows that we, we find joy in that. And so I think mm. there's this component of this narrative that's just be grateful, which glosses over the fact that, yeah, you can be grateful and it can be really joyful. Now, are there parts of my job I hate? Oh my gosh, yes. I just switched an email system and I'm still reeling. I'm like, oh my gosh, what is this work? But I still connect that to the larger purpose of helping people do this. Like if I have an email system that runs smoothly, then I have more time to help people. And that's, that's the mindset behind people being whole and work being a joy. I read something recently that uh, the two biggest motivating factors in the workplace are number one, uh, accomplishment, right? Like, so like achieving something, people want to do great work. And then number two, acknowledgement of that, of those achievements, right? Mm -hmm. Because they want to do great work and then they want people to, uh, say that they did a great job. I was talking to a leader recently who said that his culture shifted once he started um, uh, cooking breakfast for folks uh, every every uh, Friday or something. Um, and I didn't. I'm not coaching him, so I didn't say anything. I just you know kind of nodded and and like laughed you know laughed along and, and said cool. Uh, but I would argue that that person probably had a pretty strong culture already. <laughs> if the if a breakfast on Friday was like something that he noticed measurable results from because all the research says that that's actually not what people want, or at the very least, it's not what's going to turn a toxic culture into a positive one. Yeah. And I would venture to guess in that experience, it wasn't him cooking breakfast. Now it might've been like, oh, our leader cares for us and, and for real in a tangible way. But like time spent with each other and talking and those types of things. Exactly. Creating space for real relationships. Work is not just the tasks that we do. It's a community, whether we admit it or not. And so creating space for that non-task driven time is what the research shows helps improve culture. 
Super cool, super cool. Now you actually have experience. If you're comfortable talking about it, you've come out of uh, <laughs> like a, a toxic work culture. I mean, is it fair to say, Jen, that, and I'm going to ask you about this momentarily, but is it fair to say that a lot of your work is like, I don't want anybody to experience what I experienced in my old job? A hundred percent. Like I, and, and so the story goes, you know, like I was in my dream job. I was working as a school leader in the, mm. in a school that was driven through value um, and had a unique position in our city. We were succeeding at um, educating kids at a really high level without being um, without being a place that was worksheet driven, shall I say, uh, yeah. we were a play-based and experience. And, but then all the test scores showed that that was working and mm. creating community was important to us. And I had probably the best leader I've ever had and worked for in that situation. And then um, he left as many leaders do to go on and do great things. And was replaced by a leader who was so drastically different, not in, temperament necessarily like you wouldn't have noticed it at first but actually in skill and his own personal confidence mm. and it started to deteriorate our culture in a way that um we just didn't notice at first like it was just like oh okay well the new leader we just need to adjust to the new leader and what started to happen was we'd have, um, I always say the presenting injury was conflict. And uh, that's mm. what would show up. We'd have all this conflict and it would be conflict between teachers on teams or it was conflict between um, an admin request and a group of teachers. And and we, it just, it, we just kept thinking, oh, we're just not doing conflict well, which was odd because we hadn't experienced a lot of that before. Or when we did, it was just resolved in ways that felt really whole and healthy. Um, and I just started to feel like this is all my fault. Like I mm. have to be able to change this. And it became so demoralizing because it, that message, it's your fault was reinforced by our leader. Um, what I didn't know at the time is every other person on our admin team who was leading this school also felt the same. Like I must be the problem. Mm. And that position, it, I hate to say it sometimes like that because there are always contributing factors that we bring to the table. I know that I became so stressed that I was not operating at my best self either. And so I was just, rather than strategically moving forward, I was like, well, I'm going to try this, or I'm going to try this and that, that, and those things didn't work because they weren't thought through. And I was just trying to overcome this deep feeling of I am incapable because I'm being told I'm incapable. So if I try this, maybe that's what I need to do because I wasn't mm. being given clear direction. It was a lot of gaslighting. It was a lot of, well, what you don't understand is that kind of thing. And I mean, oh, go ahead, go ahead. yeah, I was going to say like that. I was going to ask like if you had specifics there. And so it sounds like new comes in not nearly as confident or skilled as the person before them. Uh, and so now when misses come up, and I've seen this in organizations, um, I actually, you're, you're reminding me of something. I think I, I think I suppressed this memory, but I'm thinking of a- <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. But I'm thinking of a previous boss that I had uh, who was a, a terrible boss. I mean, I actually told the person as much as I was leaving, which I, I kind of regret that because it, I don't think it was the most professional thing I'd ever done. But um, 
I remember that it was uh, me, this person, and then the CEO of the organization in a meeting. Uh, and I was uh, told that I was just to be there observing. Uh, and then the CEO asked me a question and I didn't have the answer. It wasn't necessarily my bucket. And my boss like lit me up after uh, that I was underprepared. Um, and I remember being like, Hey, like, I, like you told me that I was just like, just coming to sit in, but I didn't push back because that person was the boss. And I just remember being like, like what you could have done is been like, Hey, I want us to, before our meetings, I want to go over every possible scenario. uh, And then this way we're prepared for anything. Instead it was like, Hey, I want you to join this meeting. It'll be 45 minutes long. Um, Just kind of like take some notes. I want you to learn about some of these new topics. And then I'm getting my kind of my I'm getting chewed out afterward because mm-hmm. I I didn't have something and I remember being so angry and frustrated that uh, it felt like her frustration was she was taking her frustration out on me absolutely um, and I think maybe she felt embarrassed because it looked like somebody in her team was unprepared which uh, I mean technically I guess I was I didn't have the answer the person was looking for. It seems like there's some of that that went on in your in your workplace Absolutely. as well, right? Absolutely. And it was a situation where you know, I tried at the beginning, I started to notice things that were that were difficult. And I and so we had, you know, like our yearly review and in our, you know, in those review documents often there's a space that's like what's some feedback you'd like to give the leader or how could I change as a leader to help you do your job better. You know, some of that kind of questioning. And so in that section, I listed some things that were, I was finding challenging. There was lack of clear communication that um, amongst the different departments. Now, mind you, this is a school of uh, 300 kids and 50 faculty and staff members. So it wasn't like the departments were huge, but we suddenly started becoming very siloed and didn't know one of the things about our culture that was so great was this clear, transparent line of communication between admissions and assessment and curriculum and faculty. And that was, we were losing that. And so I had said, you know, the who needs to know what, when is really unclear. And we feel like we don't know what's happening and that's a challenge. And then, The other thing that was happening is we would make decisions as a collective admin team and there were action steps to that and he wouldn't complete the action steps and or would change the decision and go in a different direction. So the agency Mm. that we were given was then taken away and that feels punitive and and confusing and lacked alignment to our values. (laughs) And so there was this on top of that, this you say you're going to do this but your actions do this. And I would say that in these really professional ways in reviews and then in other opportunities. And um, my direct partner and I finally went and had a conversation together because we discovered both of us were having this struggle and we didn't want to be the gossip. Like we didn't want to gossip about our boss, but we were suddenly like, wait, I'm struggling and you're struggling. And we're having, we're seeing the same theme. Maybe we should go talk to him because we both talked to him individually first. And it just became the situation that snowballed just not out of control, but out of control. Like there was an outside consultant brought in that 
Turns out she was there just to protect him and ended up mm-hmm. in a huge scandal later with another very large organization. And <laughs> as I was reading the that report in the news um, about this large organization and this person, I was like, I just expected our name to come up next as one of the examples because it was the exact same MO. And uh, oh. so it was just demoralizing after demoralizing situation that couldn't be resolved. So I felt like everything was my fault. And yet I had no power to change anything because the parts that I was trying to change, I was either blamed or restricted at almost every turn. And um, it became a space where I just, I can remember one night coming home and just sitting on my couch in tears thinking, not only do I have no business being a leader, why do I think I can parent these children? Why do I think oh. if I am this horrible of a person, why mm. am I entrusted with these humans? Like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Wow. And wow. It was such a frustrating, devastating place. And in the, in that space is when I started to discover the Enneagram, which is a personality framework. And I, I was like, oh, you know what here, this would have been a problem in healthy circumstances, the way this personality interacts with my personality, we probably would have had some struggles even when everybody is healthy. So when this leader came in in an unhealthy place and then lacked skill to handle it, the personality clashes became extreme. And it was that kind of discovery. It's like, oh, I have a role here, but this is not all my fault. And as I was feeling, and one of the things that I learned in my study in conflict and personality and culture was that you are a hundred percent responsible for your part of something, Yeah. but it's not equally divided. So in this situation, it wasn't 50, 50 issue, Sure. It, you know, it was heavily weighted <laughs> toward the leader. Now well, there's I'm a power dynamic there as well. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's always going to be that that person is more authority in the situation. Yeah. And more power to not just power, like authority power, but action power. So positional authority as well as um, action authority. And there was, I mean, I could go on forever about this, but I think the thing that was so your question at the beginning is this started to help me realize the, the health of the leader and the skill of the leader has a huge impact on the culture of a place. Cause I just like, we had this super healthy culture. We're like, this is awesome. We're going to get a new leader and just go from glory to glory. Like just, you're going to keep going. And suddenly it was devastating. And that's the only thing that really changed. (laughs) And uh, it was like, oh, we have to get better at knowing ourselves. Self-awareness is the number one predictor of leadership skills and our leadership ability and success. And so that's where the Enneagram came in as a self-awareness tool. We have yeah, to yeah, get say more about the Enneagram. What, oh, yeah. What, tell our folks, because I'd never heard of this until I started talking to you. What, what, yeah. What so the Enneagram is a personality framework, I like to say, but it's it's a lot broader than that because it's very much a wisdom tool of self-awareness. So I, I am a good personality skill junkie. So if you're listening and you're like, I'm the one who takes the BuzzFeed quiz about, you know, about whatever, I am yeah. that person. Um, so yeah. I always loved learning about that. And my first exposure to personality tools was in junior high and peers listening, understanding and sharing. <laughs> and we started wow. doing that, wow. in, you know, like seventh grade. 
Um, but, and had really worked with Myers-Briggs and Finders um, professionally with our staff and the Enneagram came along. I rediscovered it. I was initially a big rejector of it, but rediscovered it because the difference is the Enneagram isn't just about what we do and how we do it. It's about why. And it's about the deep motivations of how we think and how we feel and how we act in the world. And that became very mm. different because the other personality tools are kind of showing us our patterns. They show us our strengths. They show us what we're doing and how we're feeling and how we're thinking and how we're behaving, but it it lacks the power to help transform truly understanding ourselves to know why we're doing it. And so that's what I have discovered about the power of the Enneagram is that it's more than just this shows you what your personality is. And it shows you how you can not change your personality, but change your behavior in a way that feels true to you, but is also more healthy for you and people around you. Mm. Super, super cool. And so just to circle back to, so I I have so many questions. When (laughs) when you're working with organizations, would you actually go into the Enneagram as like almost like a diagnostic on the front end? Um, I don't like to call it a diagnostic. I like to call it an observation. Uh, But yeah, it absolutely helps reveal who's in the room. And, you know, unless you're working with robots all day, you're working with people. And so people are the heart of work. And so looking at who's in the room matters. And so the Enneagram, when I'm working with an organization, I often start with the Enneagram as the self-awareness tool. And then we I am not super interested in just teaching people about here's what the Enneagram is. I want you to know how that matters and how you apply it in the Slack messages that you're going back and forth and how you apply Mm. that in preparing for a meeting and how project management talks with creative and, you know, how those cross-functional teams start to work together. What does it look like to apply the Enneagram wisdom in communication, in conflict, in your leadership style, in your decision-making style, all of Mm. those components, that is what makes the Enneagram powerful. Not just like, hey, this is another personality tool that's great to know about yourself. It's here's how that shows up and here's what you do about it. And so that's when I'm working with organizations. We talk about the Enneagram and then, well, what does that mean when John is having a conflict with Teresa and what do we Mm. do with that and how do their personalities play into that? And then how do good conflict resolution skills come up out of that? Like we have to have both. It's not the only thing that you can use. Otherwise we're just, I always say that um, self-awareness without self-disclosure is just navel gazing. Like if I'm just Mm. looking at myself to look at myself, (laughs) I'm not telling anybody about here's what that means for me. I'm not listening and curious about what that means for other people. It's just navel gazing. And that turns us insular rather than into a community. Then how would you coach? So so I assume you left the job that was toxic, correct? I did. I mean, long story short, I got fired and then rehired for a weird position. And then I left. (laughs) That's the super short tweet version. (laughs) So then how how would you coach? uh, And do we know if that that toxic leader is still there? Are they they long gone? They ended my... My leaving ended up a series of a cascade of events that he was then asked to resign. Um, so wow. Wow. In, in my story, it did end up okay, but that school still is, there are some things that are still there that are residuals of that. And it's five, six, six years later. 
how would you coach uh, if you were, instead of uh, working for the person, if you were actually their coach, what's the very first thing you would have, would have done it? I I imagine it would have been around what you talked about. That's kind of self-assessment, self-evaluation, and then disclosure. But tell us, what would you, uh, what would you do to kind of get coaching the leader? Yeah. That person who was so toxic. I think the thing that I would coach that person is first to, because the fear of being found out was so great of really dealing with, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? Like you have to deal with that fear. And then do you want to change this? Because there were opportunities for him to change that he did not take. Um, And I don't know if that was lack of coaching, lack of skill or lack of desire. And so if somebody's not willing to change, there's not a lot you can do. If they're like, this is fine. This is how I've always operated. The the change is not going to happen. You have to want to change because it's hard work. It's scary to look at the parts of yourself you don't like. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's really hard. And so once we find out, yes, I do want to change, I would definitely do the self-awareness work of the Enneagram. And really one of the things that's so helpful is the storytelling that we tell ourselves from our personality. So super short personality um, training personality is the framework or the narrative through which we see the world. And so if we start to see the story that our personality is telling us, then we can start to then choose, well, is that story real or is there a better story that I can, that I can work within? And I think starting to see the stories that this leader was telling himself. And if I were to make some guesses based on things that he said, there were some terrible things that happened to him in his past that Mm. and other leadership situations that he was bringing in to this new situation. So there was a lot of lack of trust Mm. that wasn't really deserved because it was being brought in from other places. And that has Mm. to be dealt with. So building trust, not just him to his team, but billing, being willing to trust his team and figuring out, well, what does trust look like? How do we rebuild trust? How do I begin to trust? Like that kind of coaching, I think would have been huge for him. And then really turning curious, what isn't working? Like, why is why are all these people coming to tell me the same thing? What are the things that I feel like are really valuable that I want to really stick with? And why is that? And like getting curious about yourself in that way and then getting curious about the other people. Well, what in them is, is causing this for them? Am I touching on some of their story as a leader that they're bringing with them because we brought our own stuff in. And then you can start to solve because you're seeing it not as a personal attack, but as a a problem that we can then start to work our way through. And so that curiosity is incredibly valuable in the process of rebuilding trust, but just in the process of problem solving and rebuilding a a situation and a team that everybody is honored for what they can do and everybody is willing to be vulnerable about the things that they can't do or the things that they struggle doing. That's Mm. a different place to work with and where failures are open and welcomed and celebrations are shared and that kind of culture, which is what we had, um, is really built on that trust and curiosity. Wow. This is like uh, you're giving us a masterclass here, Jen. This is really, <laughs> really uh, informative. And um, I, I want to uh, just 
kind of for our last topic for today, just talk to you about, you know, you've had an opportunity to do some some work with some really, uh, really big and really well-known clients. I know that some of them you can't name because of <laughs> uh, non-disclosures, though, um, uh, just from what I know, you had a, a talk uh, recently where um, people were leaving other sessions to come to yours. <laughs> And I think you spoke to like you had like 700 people in, in a couple sessions. Is that an accurate number? Yeah, there were about 700 people in two sessions. They kept having to move my room to get to the bigger room, which was exciting to be able to share that message with a group of people that would then disperse out into the country and make their own small. Um, it was a quick service restaurant chain. Um that is closed one day a week. Um, and make their <laughs> their operations built on um, compassion and curiosity and self-awareness. And that's what I was talking about, the Enneagram and your leadership style. And it was a, it was really great to see how the alignment of culture and these leaders were very committed to the idea of caring for people in such a real way. And those are the organizations I love working with. Like I want to get better at caring for my people because I know that will bring me a better organization, which will bring me profits. Like we we're in right. business to make money, sure, uh, sure, sure. Yeah. but um, that culture first is going to change people in such a positive way is really exciting. So, so for, for folks uh, who are curious as to who the talk was with, and again, Jen can't say the name of the organization, but she just dropped a couple of, a couple of hints. So if you want to go back and listen, do uh and do some research, you'll be able to find out. But Jen, what I, what I want to ask is, what's it like? Because everybody who's listening to this show, whether they're talking to 700 people that they don't know, or just talking to a person across from them that they've known for decades, what's that feeling of like, holy cow, there's so much pressure on me. Mm. Uh, do I even deserve this? Like, mm. I've shared stories of like, I'll get off a plane in, in X or Y city. And my first reaction is to like, just get back on the plane and go back to the destination. My, my, uh, my origin city, because I'm like, I, I gotta get out of here. Like there are 500 people like coming to listen to me. That's, that's crazy. So <laughs> what do you feel when you're in, in a situation like that with a, a huge, you know, a huge company and, you know, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people ready to just listen to you and your message. I think I feel me personally, I feel the, the humbling weight of responsibility mm. and, um, but in a really good way, I, I think humility gets a bad rap in lots of places. Um, and I, I define humility as rightly seeing yourself. And I know in that moment, my job is to help that group of people or that one person sitting in front of me. That's my role in that moment. And so I feel that humble weight of responsibility. Um, and I think the other thing I always want to feel it is I want to see you. Like I want you to feel seen at the end of this. And it's like, mm. okay, brave leader. I know that these pressures are hard. And when I'm, I was talking with women at Western Union and it's like, you mm -hmm. are in a male dominated space and that feels different 
than it does yeah. for the men. And, and I want them to feel very seen. And when I, mm. uh, you know, when I was at this large conference, I, from talking to them at lunch from these owner operators, it was like their supply chain pressures are so great. Mm. How do I make sure that I'm caring for my people when mm. I have to make sure that I get enough supply at a right rate so I can make money to pay them? Like, how do I, that, right. that pressure is so real. And and I think so feeling seen like, oh, you get the situation that I'm in, then opens up this opportunity for them to look at, okay, you get me enough that I can trust you for you to look at me a little bit. Because the Enneagram or conflict or communication always comes back to this really personal feeling. <laughs> and so feeling seen, I think is really important when I'm standing in front of a group of people. I uh kind of like a final thought here but um i was listening to jen gottlieb uh, talk recently and she said um if you can help somebody and if you can um, provide value for them and you choose not to um you're being rude mm -hmm. uh, and she's very you know jen i don't know if you know jen gottlieb but i'm sure some of our listeners do and uh she's got a very straight way of talking and she's just like if you are you can do something for somebody and you won't, you are rude. I'm sorry. <laughs> and I really hope that the listeners hear that. I mean, the idea that you like this, this, um, this scenario that would probably make a lot of people, you know, uh, you know, cringe with fear. Um, for you, you saw it as like a responsibility. I have a res responsibility mm -hmm. to the folks here. I have a responsibility to provide value for them. And I, I think for folks listening at home, like if, if it's, a one-to-one -one conversation, if it's just some, an email you need to send, if it's if it's a conversation with your partner or the friend that you just need to have, like you have a responsibility to do that. And if you don't do it, um, you know, it's, it's a bit of a ripoff. So. Yeah. Well, I think about the, I think it's called the Hippocratic Oath. Please don't, you know, like Google correct me, but it's the yeah, Oath the, Dr. Please do Tate. no harm, right? Please do no harm and help the person right in front of you. Yeah. I think we've got some responsibility to not sacrifice ourselves all the time, but what can I do to help the person right in front of me? And so we have a mutual goodness that goes between us. That's incredibly yeah. powerful. Jen, you are uh you are incredible and thank oh. you so much for coming on to the show. I learned a lot. I know our audience learned a lot. Where can folks find you, social media, website, anything like that? Yeah, that well, thanks so much for having me. I just, I love this conversation. It, you, I always enjoy talking to you. Um, um, yeah, so I, you can find me at jenwhitmer.com. That's 2NJen. And uh, jenwhitmer.com, you can find me on Instagram and LinkedIn. Those are the places I play the most. And um, if you are interested more about learning about the Enneagram, I've got a freebie that is just describes what the Enneagram is and what the nine types are and how you can start to discover your type. And you can find that at jenwhitmer.com slash Enneagram, um, or you can find it it pretty easily if you get there and you're like, I can't find it. Just DM me and, and I will get it to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, always providing value, Jen. Uh, much appreciated. So thankful you you came on. And uh, I, I would love if we could do this at some point down the road. Would you be interested in coming back Absolutely. to talk to us again? Awesome. Awesome. You are yes. the absolute best. Oh, uh, all right, folks, for Jen and everybody at the Inspiration Accelerator, thank you so much for stopping by. 
We'll see you next week with an all new guest. Have a phenomenal week. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode. Please look out for a new episode with a new guest every week. This was the Inspiration Accelerator with Michael Sonberg.